So last night, um, Gail was talking about the beautiful qualities of relaxation and compassion. And as you've been finding today, it's not so easy to stay relaxed and open and compassionate amidst all the difficulties that come in our practice. Um, It isn't so easy to approach and soothe when our really sort of primal instincts are to flee or to fight. At the very basic survival level, um, we're moved to either reject or grasp experience. And so it takes some training and practice to be able to find another way. And so what I'd like to talk about tonight is some of the ways we do that, and particular in reference to the polarities of rejection and allowing, those two different ways of being. And um, I was noticing, um, as I was trying to adapt to not being able to sit cross-legged right now, how I was rejecting all of the suggestions that my colleagues were giving me about how this might work. (laughs) And so um, you might want to explore, as you're listening, all the subtle different ways we reject experience. And we each have our own styles of rejection. For some of us, it's withdrawal. For some, it's devaluing or judging or comparing. But it's some way that this moment isn't quite okay, and we want it to be different. So we either grasp for another one, or we push away and resist. And sometimes it's really easy to pick up the physical sensations as we do that. And sometimes it's on a very subtle mental level that we do this rejecting. And because we're human and we're um, subject to all these changing conditions of body, mind, and heart, internally and externally, we're going to feel a need to either reject or pull or grasp towards. And the Buddha really clearly understood that. And on the night of his enlightenment, formulated the Four Noble Truths the truth of suffering, that it's inherent in this life. He didn't say that that there's always suffering, but just that, or I am suffering, but just that there is, it's inherent in life. And that there's a cause of suffering, and a way out, and a path. It's possible to be free. And tonight I'd like to focus as a way of exploring, rejecting, and allowing the first noble truth. And the word dukkha um, is very comprehensive and includes all the forms of dissatisfaction that we could possibly imagine, internally and externally. And do, the word do is often, um, a translation is different or apart from. And ka uh, comes from akash, and that is spacious or whole. So really it's being separate from what's whole. Or often it's um, thought of as a wheel being off kilter. So out of alignment, really. And whenever we make the movement of rejection, we're in some way out of alignment. So, um, with the first noble truth, just to say a a few things about the different ways of suffering that there are, the different types of suffering, because the Buddha talked about three insights, and the first was to recognize that there's suffering, all the different varieties and aspects and qualities of it, then to fully understand it, and then to be able to come to a place of integration and transformation as a result of that understanding. So the first type of suffering is dukkha dukkha, and that's the suffering of, of um, the, the, in the external world of war and violence and 
aggression and oppression and all the different things that affect billions of humans on the planet. All the different external forces that cause us to suffer. And then internally, um, there's also the ways that we suffer physically from that Gil described last night of the heavenly messengers um, that the monastery visited of old age, sickness and death, the personal forms and then the external in the world forms. And there, um, these are the sufferings that the Buddha was talking about, these last ones, where our response and our reaction to the inevitable physical changes are what cause um, the suffering that we can do something about, our responses. So our stress is caused by the ways that we relate. Humans create more suffering for themselves than other beings because we can, we can worry about the past, the present and the future. There's a lovely book called Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And that's because animals don't um, feel guilty and regret the past or blame themselves for how the present is or worry about how the future will unfold. There's a physical response. Adrenaline gets released and they escape or they get eaten one or the other and then it's over. But for us, we, we add all these mental components to it that cause our suffering. And so this is the suffering that the Buddha was addressing. And we suffer that we suffer. And it's both ironic and poignant that our minds are creating all this, but it's also hopeful because just as the mind is creating it, the mind can also learn to release it. Um, An example from my own life would be that um, in the past number of months I've had um, a knee injury and surgery. And so the surgery didn't turn out very well. And so I regret that I did it. I cause extra dukkha and suffering by regretting that I had the surgery. And then in the present moment I'm feeling really bad that I can't do all the things that I used to do, like hike up the hills. And then I worry about what will happen in the future. And so all those things are added to the sensations of knee pain that cause further suffering. And then the second form of suffering is the suffering that's inherent to change because no moment is reliable. Everything is constantly changing. So there will inevitably be times when we get what we want and equally when we get what we don't want and vice versa. And to the degree that we're attached to getting what we want is the degree to which we'll suffer. The degree to which we we reject how our experience is right now is also the degree to which we'll suffer. Um, And so we're caught in this constant needing to control things and wanting things to be the way that we would like them. And then the last form of suffering is caused because we again, cling to our bodies, the way we want our bodies to be, to our feelings, our perception, our consciousness, and um, the mental formations around that. So we want all that to stay the same, and yet it's all in constant change. And that's one of the deepest forms of suffering, is clinging, making a self out of all these conditions that are actually flowing and always changing. So that might sound a little abstract, but a way of making it a little easier to understand would be, for example, um, suppose you really liked lunch. It was a really, really, you really enjoyed it, and so you ate too much. So the pleasantness was, it was initially pleasant, then it changed, that was And then it changed and it became unpleasant because you ate too much and you were sleepy at the sit after lunch and fell asleep. So that was the unpleasantness of the unreliableness. But then you had a reaction to it. I shouldn't have eaten that. 
and I shouldn't have done this, and I judge myself or whatever. And that's the unsatisfactoriness of um, the mind states. Then you become the greedy one who did that, so you take it personally. And then you feel that the fullness is permanent. I'll always feel this way. And so there are all these ways that we've identified with and prolonged the suffering. So as you practice, you, you today, you've recognized some of these already. We notice that the body and mind and heart are constantly changing in response to perceived discomfort. It's happening all the time. And we're preoccupied and driven in trying to avoid or fix. And there's some form of rejecting experience. It's just subtly there all the time. We're leaning towards a preferred experience and we're rejecting how it is. Even just walking up the hill in the rain, you might notice a contraction against the rain and the wind. There's just a subtle rejection of of the conditions as they are. And we get just as wet whether we contract against it or not. But the body just does that. There's this instinctual retreating and contracting against. And we're, we're hardwired um, to sort of resist and reject it. And it's hard to face pain, our own pain and other people's, because it is that biological response to pull away, to reject something that's unpleasant. But the problem is that pain times resistance or rejection equals suffering. Because every time we reject how things actually are, we're out of alignment. Whenever we say no to what is, there's a way that we're fueling it somehow. Where somehow the saying no to creates a charge that makes it more sticky and it seems to stay around longer. And the no can take the form of not good enough, not enough, not acceptable. And it gets to be a real habit pattern that we get caught in, this constant rejecting of experience. So those are the forms of suffering that we see as we begin to look and explore and sit here, the ways that we resist and react to experience. The second insight that the Buddha talked about with um, the first noble truth is that we have to understand it. Rather than reject it, the the teaching is to fully understand it. And that means to directly experience it, which completely goes against our culture. Our culture is to avoid any kind of physical or mental or emotional pain. The ancient kings killed the messenger who brought the bad news. Pain is the messenger that we often want to get rid of. We don't want to hear it. It's not something that we like to allow or explore. We want to reject it. So it's challenging to listen to the messengers and to really hear and to fully connect with and allow rather than to reject or lean away. We're very intolerant of discomfort, whether it's our own or other people's. And very often when people are ill or disabled, they get marginalized. And um, when there's emotional pain, we feel ashamed or embarrassed about it. And it's seen as a weakness rather than included. So awakening to suffering isn't... Um, a seeing it as negative or depressing or despairing. It's really about embracing and allowing. Allowing it to be fully as it is. And so I'd like to talk and explore a little bit more about how to do that. We can think of acceptance as the polar opposite of rejection. And sometimes we think of acceptance of, I have to accept this, I should learn to put up with this. So it has a putting up with flavor, or an acquiescing, or 
um, a resignation. Um, But that's still not an alignment because it's still not allowing how things are. True acceptance is really having no bias or judgment or preference. It's an inclusivity that allows things to fully be as they are. And this kind of acceptance or allowing is a deep caring. It's not a giving up. It's a fully being with things as they are. It's really sitting fully in the seat of whatever it is that's arising. It's got curiosity and um, investigation and a willingness to be there and kindness so that we're able to approach everything with a kind of sensitivity and equanimity. We're not doing anything to change what's happening. We're more inquiring into what's happening. And so again, you can notice that as you're listening. You might, there might be things that I'm saying that are useful, so you can allow them to move in and settle in. Or there might be things that you've heard a hundred times um, or feel irritated by. And notice the subtle movement of rejection. And what might it be to just release it? Um, so that there's no for or against. It's more an inclusive and an allowing and a seeing what's the direct experience as you receive things. So we can notice the movements of rejection, notice what it's like to reject, what it's like to allow, to explore and feel and sense that. We're not trying to get anywhere, but just to be utterly where we are, to just sense that. So as I just pause and sense that, I can sense underneath a subtle rejection of being uncomfortable. Can't quite see see where I am, because I'm not used to sitting like this. And there's a subtle wanting it to be the way it used to be. And um, so finally I'm starting to settle in and allow that this is how it is. Probably for the first 10 minutes or so, there was a resistance. And there was a pushing away and a not allowing it into awareness. And so then it was underneath and getting in the way. (laughs) It's like a bump that I'm having to talk around. And so it, it helps to fully allow because that's what allows things to move through. When we're in this place of rejection, somehow it seems to um, block the unfolding. It's like we're putting a dam into the unfolding experience by rejecting. And somehow there's a belief that if we fully allow it, that it will um, it'll be here forever. If we fully allow something, that it won't be workable or that it'll be here forever. And that actually furthers more rejection. So it kind of... Um, Now, I can't find the word for that, but it sort of builds on itself. And even though it feels counter, the allowing of it is what enables it to move through. Because the energy isn't blocked, and then there's a flow. So what we're doing is we're we're embracing, and it's not even embracing as a movement, It's more just a willingness to be with. Here I am with however it is. So there's a a kind attention. Rather than we're paying attention to get rid of, we're paying attention to be with, to understand rather than to get rid of. And it's not a small thing. It takes a lot of courage and willingness to be with things when they're very difficult. And... Um, Gloria Steinem said, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. (laughs) And so you have to be willing to be pissed off. It's not about being nice. Allowing and accepting sounds nice, but it actually is very courageous. And that's why it's a noble truth to be able to fully face it 
even when it's very unpleasant and difficult. And what we're doing here is developing that capacity to be with. The Buddhist felt spent lifetimes developing those capacities and qualities of the heart that enabled him to face the armies of Mara on the night of his enlightenment. All those many lifetimes of cultivating pure presence, loving kindness, faith, wisdom, strength, resolve, and the concentration and mindfulness that enabled him to stay with it, to come to a place of pure penetrating wisdom and complete freedom. And so we're cultivating some of these same qualities. And the first one that Gil was talking about this morning is mindfulness, that ability to be present and pay attention to the direct felt experience. Not our ideas about it, but the actual felt experience. Free from ideas and and opinions. Very simple, exactly how it is. So it's precise, it's open, and it's kind. And that clears up the cognitive field, so to speak, and it helps us to come into accord with the truth so we can see clearly. It reveals things as they are. And it's very receptive rather than rejecting. It's a reception that doesn't repress and doesn't reject. It's all-inclusive. And as we did this morning, one of the most helpful ways that we can be mindful um, um, is mindfulness of the body. Because when we, we begin with mindfulness of the body and mindfulness of the breath, because it builds the stability and groundedness that enables to be with, us to be with difficulty. It's very hard not to reject when we don't have any stability. And so we need that embodiment, that really felt sense of being fully in the body to be stable so that we're not as blown by all the different things that come and go. And we really connect. And as I'm talking, just get that felt sense of what it's like to fully be in your body right now, in this body, in this moment. The Buddha taught to experience the body in the body, not our thoughts about it, but the actual direct experience of it. The sensations that come and go. And when we use the noting, it helps to connect to the direct experience. So when we're naming coolness, pressure, tension, vibration, we're pointing to direct experience so that the noting should be equal to knowing. Sometimes the noting can be very verbal, but it's really directing us to connect with the direct experience of actually being in the body. So, right now, what's it like to be in your body? You don't have to close your eyes, but just to know the experience in your body. What are you aware of? What sensations are here? What's the quality of them? What's the intensity of them? And of all the sensations that there are in your body, what are you choosing to pay attention to? Are you choosing to pay attention to the pleasant ones or the unpleasant ones? Just notice what draws your attention more. And what happens as you pay attention to them? Notice how they change. It has survival value, strangely enough, to pay attention to what's unpleasant. And of course, the reason for that is obvious. If you pay attention to what's unpleasant, you're more likely to escape. If you pay attention to what's pleasant, you might get drawn into eating or mating and get eaten while you're doing that. And so, 
it's a very old pattern in the brain to pay attention to what's dangerous first. And so what, what we're... And that doesn't have such great value if we're always looking for what's wrong in our practice or what's wrong in our body. So it can help to notice what else am I aware of. So we can also pay attention to the whole of the picture, the neutral sensations, the pleasant sensations, and how they're all changing. And then we can notice what meaning am I giving the sensations. So there's the knowing of the sensation, and then there's the knowing of our reactions to the sensations. Both those are valuable. What's our attitude towards them? Are we allowing the sensations to come and go, do what they do? Or have we given a meaning to them that's made them more intense and now we're rejecting both the sensations and the meaning that we've given to them? So we can notice that, play with it. So there's the direct experience of the sensations themselves and then there's the mental reaction to it, the ideas we have, and the emotional feeling tone of it, the emotional reaction to it. Sorry, the feeling tone is the piece where we know the the sensations as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then the movement of pleasant towards wanting, or unpleasant to rejecting. So you can see those as you pay attention. And we can explore mindfully and notice that it's possible to be with the sensations as they are without moving into rejection or into grasping, just to be with them as they are. Sometimes we don't have the capacity to mindfully explore. It just feels too intense. It's really difficult. And then it's important to really notice that and see that there isn't the capacity right now. And can I be with it with kindness rather than rejection? The mind needs strength and flexibility to be with difficulty. And so it's important to create those capacities to help us be with it. Otherwise, we get exhausted and struggling and tired if we're pushing when we don't have those capacities. One of the ways of helping support them is to use the breath and, again, attention with the body. Often what happens when things are difficult um, is that we get into what um, biologically is is known as the sympathetic nervous system overdrives. And so more and more anxiety and tension and pressure and agitation comes in. And what helps counterbalance that is to bring in the parasympathetic nervous system, which is calming. And so those two are usually, ideally, in balance, where you've got enough energizing from the sympathetic and enough calming from the parasympathetic to be in balance. But a lot of the time we're out of balance, particularly in our culture. And one of the ways of rebalancing is using the breath. So when we breathe in, it brings energy in. If you breathe out a slow, deep out-breath, that's calming. That, that triggers the parasympathetic nervous system. And the Buddha knew that all those years ago. And so um, breathing in, aware of the body, Breathing out, calming the body, is in the Mindfulness of Breathing Sutta. So we can breathe in deeply and breathe out slowly, calms the body and brings ease, and it's very helpful. Thich Nhat Hanh has a useful series of phrases um, that some of you are probably familiar with. In time with the breathing, in, out, deep, Slow, calm, ease, smile, release. And so it's using that 
ability to bring calming when the whole system is agitated. And it's really helpful when there's fear or restlessness or anxiety to cultivate calm in that way. So we're balancing our effort and our mindfulness. There's the, and we're balancing the relaxation also with interest. So those two things also are balanced. So there's a willingness and there's an interest, and yet it isn't moving into forcing or striving. So sometimes we can pause in the middle of something that's unpleasant and notice, what am I aware of right now? What's happening? What am I rejecting or what am I grasping? What's, what's happening? And we might notice, oh, judging and rejecting feels like this. We get, really get to know what the rejection and the judging feels like. And then we start to get to know what the releasing and allowing feels like. And that in itself is cultivating this unconditional friendliness. So the curiosity is supported by love and supported by trust. And we practice with small amounts of discomfort, small amounts of dissatisfaction, so that we can build our capacity to be with. And we can start, as we do that, and we start to build the capacity to be with small amounts of it, then we start to experience it for ourselves that it changes anyway. That the sensations come in waves and they're not so solid. And we can begin to allow the feelings of urgency or the feelings of compulsion to have this thought or this story again and again, or the fear or whatever it is, we can begin to let them move through. Not so long ago, I was sitting a retreat and having some really unpleasant, um, everything was unpleasant, in physically, mentally, and emotionally. The whole thing was unpleasant. And it was very restless and agitated. And at some point, I realized I was really caught in resisting it and wanting it to be other. And so what I did was I just kept naming whatever was happening. I kept naming the unpleasantness and allowing the direct experience of it, just going deeper into the direct experience of the unpleasantness, really unpleasant, intensely unpleasant, intensely restless, intensely, whatever it was, and then began to question, who's experiencing this? Who's experiencing the restlessness, the intensity, the contraction, the disgust, all these things? And as I began to go deeply into them and question who it was that was experiencing, they began to release. And there began to be a feeling of ease and contentment and joy as it moved through. And it really became very clear to me, this is not me, this is not mine. It's just these, um, these states moving through. Because the more we resist, the more we identify them with them, and the more solid they become, and the more difficult it is. Sometimes the fear and the pain can be overwhelming, and the grief. And some of you have talked about that, how it's really difficult. We can feel engulfed with it, and it feels impossible to accept it. This is not possible to accept, or even to be with. And so what we're really doing then is being with that it's unbearable now. This is what unbearable is like. And being able to be with it, just just that moment, just one step of being with it how it is. Allowing that this moment is unbearable. Or as Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says, I'm not okay, you're not okay, and it's okay. So just this acknowledgement, it's not okay right now. But just that acknowledgement frees up the energy a little bit because we've turned towards it rather than struggled with it. We're not rejecting the fact that it's unbearable. And so it just begins to loosen and untangle a little bit. And there's less struggle when we do that.
So this turning towards is more um, an abiding with rather than a dwelling in. And that's an important difference. So we're not going in to um, get lost in it or um, completely identified with it. It's really much um, more a being with to see clearly. So we're becoming very intimate with it and seeing exactly how it's put together, what all the component parts are. And that's very helpful. So we start to see, as we pay attention, um, maybe there's, a, maybe there's a, a tension in the head or the chest or there's pressure or there's nausea. Sometimes that will happen with fear. And we see all the component parts of the fear. And then underneath we might see the hopelessness or the despair or the restlessness. And it starts to tease out so it's not one solid lump. And we start to see, oh, this is what I'm actually rejecting. I'm rejecting the hopelessness part of it. And so there starts to be more space as it gets teased out and taken apart. So the fear feels like this. The fear is the pounding in the heart and the racing and the stomach and the nausea. And then there's the judging of the fear. And the judging of the fear feels like this. And that feels slightly different. And then there's aversion to it. And that has the quality of contraction and pushing away. So in seeing all these different pieces of it, it's less overwhelming because it starts to dissipate. It's like it's taking it apart. And then with all that, we might become aware of, an, uh, aware of a belief. I can't be with fear. This isn't possible. And then is that really true? I'm being with it right now. And so we start to see what it is that we're believing, what, how it is that we're adding to it, all the different parts of it. I'm such an anxious person. Rather than fear is passing through or anxiety is passing through right now. And that the fear is arising due to causes and conditions. It's just here um, because of events that are taking place. It's not a permanent visitor. On this same retreat that I was talking about, um, I was having a lot of intense physical sensations and um, I tend to get visual images when I meditate. And so I had this image, visual image, in the midst of these really intense sensations that I just couldn't figure out of this enormous monument like the Egyptian pyramids that were sort of going up into the heavens. I was really curious about it. What on earth is that? And so then I saw these little people come and take samples out of it, you know, trying to figure out what it was. And then it dawned on me, it was a monument to my anxiety. And that all my life, I'd been building this monument to my anxiety. And every time I was anxious, another bit got added. And then it dawned on me that it was intergenerational. You know, it was my parents' anxiety and their parents' anxiety. And it is like that. It's in our, in our nervous system that we inherit. We sort of, in, in the womb sometimes even, we're flooded with the adrenaline of our mother or whatever it is, the environment we're born into. So there I was with this monument to my anxiety. And I got really clearly, wow, I created this. It's just a creation. It's a mental creation. And as soon as I saw that, it dissolved. And then I got very excited. Wow, aren't I great? <laughs> Look what I can do. So I became the great one. <laughs> so there's a monument to that, but it wasn't as big because that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> and so then, you know, there was peacefulness and contentment. And then what if it comes back? And sure enough, I saw these little characters off stage, pulling the monument back on stage again. <laughs> and I saw that um, this, it, when the causes and conditions are right, it will trigger that. That's just how I am. It's just how the causes and conditions of my life have been such that anxiety gets triggered easily. But seeing that it was a creation or not real was very helpful. 
because there was a direct experience. This is not me. It's not permanent. It's a passing state. And also then there was no blame for when it comes back again because of the conditions in my life. I'm subject to that. Some of us are subject to anger or to regret or to self-judgment or whatever it is. We all have our particular patterns that have been set that cause the suffering for us. And a lot of this practice is about understanding in deeper and deeper ways how they get set in motion. And the more we understand how they get set in motion, the greater the possibility of freedom is. Because for some years in my practice, I got some freedom from noting fear and, uh, or anxiety. And um, fear is like this, anxiety is right like this. And that was very helpful to be with the bare experience. But what was more helpful still was understanding the personal identification with it. That that was what was keeping it coming back and coming back and coming back. And so that's the value of seeing the ways we reject and the value of fully allowing is we get to see the whole picture and be able to take it apart. And we also see that's true for others. They're not their fear or their pain. And we also then have really have compassion for others acting the way they do. Just as I get triggered in these ways, so do other people. And there's compassion for that. And for all the other people who are caught in fear and confusion and act out due to these forces. So if we can, what we see then is that these moments of fear or pain or anger or whatever they are, are moving through awareness. But the awareness itself isn't afraid or in pain or confused or in doubt. They're just passing forces. And what we're doing is we're building the resources to be able to be with it when we're stuck so that we can come to a place of clarity. And it takes time. And sometimes we get really caught and we can't do it. We're too caught in it to be able to have that distance. And so sometimes it helps to go take a shower or have a long walk or to have a cup of tea or to do something that will bring in some calming and some balance. That old bringing in the parasympathetic nervous system that calms down so that we can have a little balance to be able to see clearly. It's not possible to see clearly when your whole being is flooded with, with the flight and fright response chemicals. And so um, it's helpful to have these tools. And it's also helpful to really understand that they're all going to keep coming and going. So when we unconditionally accept that hatred appears, that it's arisen, we acknowledge that, we allow it's actually arisen rather than rejecting or not wanting it to be there or pushing it away. When we acknowledge and allow that it's arisen, then the heart opens and it's possible for love to move through. Love is, becomes visible. There's the releasing of the energy of anger and hatred and there's a purification that takes place. And the same with greed. When we fully allow, rather than I'm a greedy person, more greed is here and it's this big. We're allowing how big it is. It's huge. I want. Wanting is here. That's how big it is. Then it gets to move through and generosity can arise. Or if we fully allow confusion or doubt, this is how much the confusion there is, then it's possible for it to move through and clarity to arise. And the same with all the different states Um, of grief or despair, when we fully allow grief and despair to to move through, um, really fully allow them, then joy is on the other side. 
But we can't get to those places unless we can fully allow and be with the difficult states. So, the second insight is this penetrating and fully understanding our suffering by directly knowing. And by also knowing our attitude, seeing the ways we reject, seeing the ways that we allow, noticing that. And the tools that we've been talking about are using the breath and the body to bring stability and calm. And even just now, as I say that, coming into your body, noticing how that brings stability and calm. Even when the body is uncomfortable and in pain, we can be present in it without rejecting it. So you can notice the times that you reject the body or experiences in the body and bring compassion rather than blame to that. So we're not rejecting the rejecting or rejecting the judging. Another way that helps is to really remind ourselves that we're not a closed system, that the body is fluid and open to all of life. And the Buddha specifically taught the four elements, the elements of earth and air and fire and water. And this beautiful teaching to his son Rahula to pay attention to the earth element inside and outside and the fire element, all the different elements internally and externally. And as we do that, we feel our connection to all of life. And there's that movement interconnectedness that Um, allows us to be with difficulties in a different way. So that we can take support from the earth and from the sky, just as the Buddha did on the night, night of his enlightenment. He took refuge in the earth and in the openness of all the elements. And then we're cultivating strength and patience and resolve to be with these difficulties. And we're bringing in the beautiful qualities of friendliness and appreciation and compassion and balance. All of these help. And then beginner's mind helps, knowing that each moment is a new beginning. I like each time I come in to sit when I'm on retreat to know that this is a new moment. It's a fresh start. I don't have to carry all the other sittings or walkings with me. Or as you walk out the door, you get to leave however that sitting was behind. It's a fresh start. And we start to trust our own experiences, our experiences of grief or anger or beauty or joy, whatever they are, we start to trust them. And knowing that the accepting them is moving to transformation. So we're not being afraid of the first noble truth. We're simply letting it be fully known so that the transformation can happen. It can touch our hearts and move us to a place of greater compassion. So whenever we're resting in the mind with the heart open and without being attached to preferences about anything particular happening, simply knowing and being and knowing and being, there's a kindness and a sensitivity that develops, a real sense of spaciousness. And it's as though there's a kind of melting inside when the heart accepts really fully, this is how it is, rather than taking a fixed view. So we're more having an inner orientation to how things actually are. And it doesn't mean that we don't work to make change in the world when we see suffering. It's not an accepting, a kind of acceptance where um, I'm accepting how things are, this is it. It's much more an allowing and really closely looking at how is suffering happening here? And from that, we can begin to see what we might do and see more clearly how to act. So we're 
operating from a different stance. We're not rejecting all these difficulties from awareness. There's a deep acknowledgement of how the condition, how the, what the condition of being human is like. And that's what brings the compassion. As we include and allow all of who we are, we begin to learn to include and allow all of who others are, all of what's happening in the world. And we're less separate from each other and less separate from all of life. And that feeling of interconnectedness for me is like a feeling of coming home. It's a feeling of coming home to the beauty of all of life, of not being separate from it. And so that we can act then from a place of compassion and wisdom. So, what I'm offering really is an opportunity to explore what it might be like to allow experience to be as it is. And to really play with that without any kind of forcing, but just a sense of curiosity and willingness. So let's sit for a moment. Knowing the direct experience that's here for each of us right now. What's it like to include all of your experience. So thank you for your attention. <laughs>